0: Give it a shot. The Alexandria Times encourages all residents to get the COVID-19 vaccine when available to protect yourself and your community. We are currently in phases 1A and 1B of the vaccine availability. Visit the City of Alexandria website at www.alexandriava.gov to pre-register for the vaccine wait list. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy, the Alexandria Times podcast. I'm your host, Cody Mellocline, managing editor at the Times, and today I'm joined by the Emmy award-winning journalist and filmmaker behind the documentary Our Alexandria, which tells the story of two local artists as they explore and capture the city's segregated past through the historic dollhouses they create. Welcome to the show, Robin Hamilton. How's it going? Thank
1: you so much. It's going quite well. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. I'm a big fan, so thank you for having me.
0: Definitely. We're excited to be able to talk with you um, about everything. You've had a very kind of storied career, and, and <laughs> obviously this this latest note in your career, the, the documentary we'll be talking about today, is most relevant to us in Alexandria, but I think a lot of the work you've been doing is probably is of interest to people. Um, But I guess starting out, obviously, your career is all about storytelling, whether it's in the work you do as a journalist or in the work you've done as a documentary filmmaker in the three documentaries you've made so far. Did you always have a passion for storytelling? Um, and I guess when did you know that you kind of wanted to make your way into journalism?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Cody. I have always enjoyed it, and I but it's one of those things where you didn't realize it until you get to it. And I remember when I was in college, I was supposed to do a, a thesis, an honors thesis, about the des- desegregation of Durham. And what I was finding while everybody was doing these extensive academic papers, I was going around interviewing people who had actually lived through it. And it felt very much like a journalistic piece instead of an academic paper. And that put me on the path of telling stories. And and I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And I decided I think that's something that I wanted to do. Did I think I was going to be a filmmaker down the line? Absolutely not. But it was one of the... um, elements that drew me into reporting into journalism
0: you have made three documentaries obviously and that's sort of something you've come to a little bit later in your career yes it's it's interesting because i obviously there is there are a lot of links between the work you were doing as a a broadcast reporter and the work you're doing as a documentary filmmaker um how did that transition sort of come about and, and have you found that those two kind of I guess, halves of your of your career have sort of complemented each other nicely.
1: Yeah, they really have. It's it was very unexpected, but I think it does make a natural, um, you know, they naturally fit. I have felt that telling stories are fundamental and the way you tell them can differ a little bit. But the elements of a beginning, middle and end, a beginning, an arc and a closure, um, that's pretty standard. And. One of the reasons why I ended up doing films, making films, is because when I was a reporter, I loved doing feature stories. I thought they were so much fun. You could really tell someone's experience and share and illuminate something that was really amazing. A lot of times, you get to see ordinary people do amazing things, as cliche as that sounds. Unfortunately, I wasn't doing enough of that as much as I wanted to when I was um, reporting day in and day out. And so I felt like if I wanted to do more extensive feature stories, then I should start thinking about what formats I can do that makes it acceptable to do something a little bit longer. And I had really loved Mrs. Hamer when I had learned about her in college. And I decided, well, I should interview, reach out to the people that I had met. When we last talked, I mentioned we had, I had gone to, when I was in Boston, the Democratic National Convention was there in 2004. And um, there was an event celebrating Mrs. Hamer's testimony at the Democratic National Convention Credential Committee from 1964. And when I was there, I met people who had actually worked with her, lived with her, rallied with her, walked the streets, pounded the pavement with her. And in talking to them, I realized I wanted to interview them and capture who she was. And that's really the beginning of how, how I started down this path. So it wasn't intentional, but I do feel like the way I interview people is very um, similar to how I worked as a reporter. And really, my reporting training has been tremendous because you work under deadline, something that I'm sure you can yeah. appreciate. And when I... I was meeting other filmmakers, people would take years and years and years to finish. And some of that is funding, which is definitely difficult. But a lot of that is just organization and how you prioritize your time. And for reporters, you don't have a lot of time if you're not in a specialized area. You have to research, you have to find it, and you have to really plow through. And that's what I wanted to do. That doesn't mean I wasn't thoughtful about it. But I also did not want a story to just languish for 10 years. Um, I wanted to be intentional about how I did my research, how I did my writing. And uh, so that training as a daily reporter was hugely helpful.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, the making of that, the first documentary, and the, I think the one you're referring to is, is I believe it's called This Little Lad of oh, Mine, the yes. Legacy of Fanny Hamer. Tell me a little bit of, about the experience of making that documentary. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine, although, as you said, sort of a lot of your skills and your lessons that you had gotten as a reporter were immensely helpful in that process. I'm sure there were a few things that you had to learn along the way. Yes. Um, What was that initial entrance into documentary filmmaking like for you?
1: Oh, sure. It It was great. And there were a lot of things that I appreciated and knew as far as production, there were a lot of things on the back end that I didn't know. So I did end up doing um, a lot of research in terms of finding my subjects, the interview subjects. That was pretty easy. I mean, I got a bunch of no's because I wasn't anyone big. I wasn't a network. I was basically a nobody. But the people who were willing to talk to me, it was terrific because they um you know, they were, they were in the trenches. It was the people who were up here who had handlers that didn't have time for me, but the people who had actually been in the trenches with her were accessible and available, which was great. That part was wonderful. Just making the call, the calls. Again, I'm sure anyone who's worked in a newsroom knows what it is. You just cold call and, and make those calls and go down the line. What was harder for me was a lot of the other logistics, like um, researching photos and again, finding the licensing rights to use those photos,
0: yeah. um,
1: and dealing with the fees, calling up networks to ask if you could use their archival footage, and then negotiating prices. The prices are really expensive. Um, having to deal with legal issues, making sure that all your legal um, you know questions are answered so that someone can't say, oh, your film can't be aired. Um, know anymore because you haven't gotten this clearance that was very challenging Um, so it's all the boring back-end uh work i shouldn't say boring but it's essential
0: yeah
1: um and also working with an editor for a piece that that was that was that long i had never done something like that before and one of the things i appreciate is you want to make sure your editor shares the same vision that you have and the first, I had two editors on the piece. And the first one, we didn't really share the same vision or aesthetic. And I was very fortunate to meet a second editor who really understood what I was trying to do. And he really helped put it over the finish line. So on a longer piece, collaborating with someone who understands what you're trying to do is beneficial. And in a newsroom, it's, it's important, but it's not as essential. At the end of the day, you have a day to get something together or two or three pieces together and that's it. You know, there really isn't a lot of time for a lot of nuance. You want to get along with who you're working with, but for longer pieces, it's a little bit more nuanced.
0: Definitely. I think between, so between that film and obviously your your second film, Dignity and, Def- mm-hmm. Dignity and Defiance, I'm sort of curious, those are two stories about two people, That delve into a lot of obviously they're they're fundamentally about specific people but they obviously are about race and the history the history of this country around race as well but they're very much about specific stories and those stories I have to imagine for the people in the film are sort of hard to recall sorry hard to tell yeah hard to to kind of dredge up again what kind of environment do you create on your sets and kind of in those conversations to be able to have people tell those stories? Is it ever sort of a a difficult scenario to kind of get those stories out of them? Are they ever reluctant to tell those stories to you?
1: Yes. One of the the issues I came across, particularly with the Fannie Lou Hamer story, was that uh, these were people who had lived through horrible times in yeah. the 60s, times that I can't even imagine. And there was one woman that I had reached out to who was pretty elusive. And finally, I was able to track her down. Her name was Evester Simpson. And she was one of the young ladies who was in the Winona jail when Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten. And when I asked her if I could interview her, she just said to me, you know, I only talked about it once. I talked about it with a reporter. It was not a pleasant experience. He was insensitive mm-hmm. to what I was trying to explain. And to me, it still feels like it was yesterday. And this is something that had happened to her 50 years ago. And yeah. she just didn't want to talk about it. And I think that, that really underscores the type of trauma that people experienced. Um, Dignity and Defiance wasn't as difficult because, um, you know, I was talking to Mary Church Terrell's grandson, sure. and he was lovely, and he was very young. He didn't um, face any direct physical harm. And the other people I talked to were scholars. So it was a much more pleasant experience. But ironically enough, when I interviewed the two artists in R. Alexandria, they were lovely, and... Um, But they really recall how painful segregation was despite this wonderful, idyllic childhood they had. And it was idyllic because the adults protected them so much. But there have been times when I have screened that film and Linwood Smith had to walk out near the end because some of the memories were so painful and so vivid. And again, this happened 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. You had asked me what kind of uh, situation I create on set. One of the greatest things about being a, a small production company, and again, when you're a reporter, you know how to be very lean and mean. And so you have limited funds. And so I keep—I don't bring a lot of people on on set. I'll have uh, my my one camera guy, cinematographer, and sometimes I'll have a gaffer. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but really, it's just the three of us. And I think the people that I interview aren't used to a whole lot of lights and cam cameras and cords. I think that's really scary. So if you yeah. don't have the fewer people you have, the more comfortable you can make somebody. And then we also talk ahead of time. I go over questions. I explain to them what I'm trying to do. I show them my CV so they know that I'm not I'm not a gotcha person. This is not a fly by night, you know, exercise. Mm-hmm. This is legitimate.
0: I think. Right, you talked a little bit about your experience with Our Alexandria, and that's, I guess, sort of what I want to pivot to because I think that's, at least for our our show, that's what's most immediately relevant to a lot of the people that will be listening. Um, Tell me a little bit about the story that you're telling Mm -hmm. in Our Alexandria. Obviously, it focuses on two people, Sharon Frazier and, as you mentioned, Linwood Smith. How did you find this story, and how did you sell the two of them on the idea of the documentary in the first place.
1: Yes, Cody, I can tell you are a news person because you understand how hard it is to convince people (laughs) sometimes to talk to you. Uh, Well, first, I found out about R. Alexandria because I was screening my other film, the Mary Church Terrell film, Dignity Mm -hmm. and Defiance, uh, through the Alexandria Black History Museum and I was working with Audrey Davis, who's the executive director there, and she's been a tremendous supporter of my work. And she really, uh, you know, she's been wonderful. At any rate, after the screening, she just made an aside and said, oh, just so you know, we have this new exhibit and you can swing by any It's this collection of dollhouses by these two local artists and they just capture the history of our of Alexandria when they were growing up. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting. I should, just, I should just pop in. I went there, and not only was I enchanted by the dollhouses, I was also so moved by getting to meet uh, Linwood and Sharon. First of all, how often do you get to meet the artist of the yeah. work that you see? It doesn't often happen. And not only that, but they were so welcoming about sharing their work and it's almost as if they were just saying, this isn't anything big. This is just a hobby that we enjoy. And we just like doing it because we're best friends. And this is just what we do. At any rate, I was so intrigued by it. And I thought the detail of the houses and the memories that they brought up were so powerful. I thought, OK, well, maybe I can ask them if, they, if they'd be interested in doing a hmm. film with me. They are very shy and humble and are not into the spotlight at all. So I had to do a lot of talking, uh, you know, the first time I met them. And then I had to talk to Audrey some more. Then I had to talk to, I emailed Audrey again. And then I I had to write up what I was doing. And then she finally gave me Linwood and Sharon's phone number. And they have been friends Uh, for a long time. And so I understand that she was protective, and she also wanted to respect their space and their wishes. So I had to do quite a bit of cajoling to get the two of them to be open. And then once I did, we did the interview, and they were wonderful. And it was very funny because Sharon called me after. We did two sets of interviews. She called me after the second set of interviews and said, I don't know if I said that right. I don't know. I said, Sharon, it's fine, really. And she said, I, I don't know, if, I don't know if I feel good about this. I said, really, it's going to be okay, really. And I have to say, one of the best—I um, was so touched. One of the best compliments was when she said she saw it, and she said, "This has been one of the greatest experiences of my life." That oh, meant, wow. yeah, that meant the world to me. So they're happy with it. That's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you did something, right?
1: Yeah, right, right.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit about the dollhouses themselves, and sort of the, as you mentioned, the history that that these dollhouses represent is something that is, in some ways, very specific to to Sharon and Linwood, but also in in, in a much more meaningful way, more general to the history of Alexandria, largely speaking. Tell me a little bit about the dollhouses themselves.
1: Yes. What's interesting about the dollhouses, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Cody, because there are different part, facets of the dollhouses that I am so drawn to. Because on one hand, they have these incredibly personal touches. On another other hand, they talk about specifically the Alexandria experience and the history. And then the third tier is it's still a universal story in terms yeah. of life and home and love and friendship. So the dollhouses have an incredible amount of detail. They have little things like a little baseball bat and a you know a loaf of Wonder Bread and, and toys and mirrors and curtains, things that you would see, you would remember in your home growing up. They have a house that shows a beauty salon that, that Sharon remembers going to and the barber shop that Linwood went to. They capture all of these memories of places that used to really exist. Uh, They had a a hat shop, Tops of Alexandria, which today still exists, which Hmm. is remarkable. So the level of detail is remarkable because it captures what their life was like. And they do take quite a bit of time to not only work with their memory, but also find photos. And one of the things Sharon said to me was, "Go, go to Tops, you'll see, we have well, you, it's we made it the way it really it really was and it's true. I went there and it really was like that. The level of detail I was astounded by. In terms of the history of Alexandria, one of the big themes was the pool that they were making. And the pool had a significant history because it was the segregated pool that was designated for children of color at that time. And that's where the history became very challenging because it was reminiscent of a time where they were protected in their neighborhood and yet they were still seen as less than to the outside society, the majority of um, Alexandria at the time. And I thought that was very powerful. So they had this this um, back and forth or, or front side, back side of the, the good of growing up there and then the sadness of having to Live with separate um, amenities uh, yeah. for for their neighborhood, and then the third piece. Um, one of my favorite clips in the film, and one of the, my favorite dollhouses, is this kitchen scene that Sharon took great lengths to detail. It's a woman and a little a little grandma. She has a little bun and is carrying a, a turkey, and there's a her granddaughter in a chair holding. A, I think it's an apple pie or something. And it's a very sweet picture capturing Thanksgiving. And she said, well, I wanted to make this because on one hand, this is reminiscent of a woman who made us Sunday dinners. You could actually go to her house Mm. and buy Sunday dinners. And that was a form of income for her. It was a great way for people to get a hot meal if they couldn't get one. But she said, I also liked it because... The idea of a home-cooked meal and Thanksgiving, it it looks a little Thanksgiving-ish. That's universal. That's something that a lot of people uh, experience here, at least in the U.S. And so I think she liked, both of them, liked creating something that was both very personal and familiar to the greater public.
0: Yeah. One of the most fascinating things about the film, and you sort of alluded to it there, is the. I guess the concept of memory and mm-hmm. how these these doll are obviously they're they're a creative expression for for Sharon and Linwood but they're they're an expression of like how they remember a lot of these sites they're yes. drawn from photographs and they're drawn from their specific sort of subjective memories and the I guess the vibes that they got from those places as well yes and it's interesting because I think we we had talked about this a little bit previously before we started recording but the, how the concept of of nostalgia can yes. sort of worm its way into your memory and impact things and how that nostalgia plays off of i guess the quote-unquote objective reality of a photograph and what that represents and that's something that, that i'm not sure if that's something you knew you wanted to capture going into the film or it's something you sort of discovered as you were talking with them and making the film
1: yeah, it was something I more discovered with them and talking okay. when when they were making uh, making the film. What's interesting was I I caught them right when they were in the conceptual stage of creating the swimming pool.
0: Mm.
1: And so when I we did filming and we were watching them put the pool together, we had talked about them what they remember. And Sharon is also a perfectionist in terms of how she, puts the pieces together because Linwood is the structural. He does the external structure. And then Sharon puts the details together. And she says that she actually will go back and look at pictures. And it was very cute to see the two of them go back and forth where he said, no, wait, the bathroom was over here. No, it wasn't. It was over here. <laughs> and they would go back and forth. And it was fascinating to see how um, their nostalgia can, it can play with your memory a little bit. And she really wanted to make sure that they were true to to what memories they had, but also accurate to what really existed. Because honestly, the, the pool doesn't exist anymore. So really they could have done whatever they wanted, but they really wanted to be true, as true to it as possible. And what was interesting was, I think people really loved it. What was great was there was a screening at the Lyceum last year in January, and they unveiled the finished product and yes and people were just really moved by how much the pool reminded them of their childhood how accurate it was they did a great job
0: yeah that's that and that's sort of something that's interesting about both the documentary and these dollhouses in particular i think the pool you're referencing i believe it's called is it the johnson memorial Pool? yes exactly um as you said, that that site doesn't exist anymore, right? Uh, in this in the city, and I know Audrey Davis, who you mentioned before, um, the director of the Black History Museum here in the city. She's she's talked about in the past the concept of phantom sites, yes, sites that no longer exist but do in a way exist because they're still in our memories yes. and in kind of the the collective cultural history of a neighborhood. Th- these dollhouses are historical artifacts in a way because they're preserving and kind of capturing places that no longer exist, which is incredible when you think about it.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why it was a little puzzling that I had to make such a sell to Sharon and Linwood because it was almost as if they didn't realize how valuable their work is to the community.
0: The Alexandria Times encourages all residents to get the COVID-19 vaccine when available. Visit the City of Alexandria website at www.alexandriava.gov to pre-register for the vaccine waitlist. For more information, visit the Virginia Department of Health website, www.vdh.virginia.gov, for updated information on phases for the state of Virginia. Protect yourself and your community. Give it a shot. The, a lot of the stories you're telling here about the pool and, and about the memories that, that Sharon and Lynn would have, it's an area of the city's history that up until recently hasn't really been that well documented um, for very specific and very obvious reasons. there. This is a history and, and these are stories about people who have been historically marginalized in the city. And in 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 that way documentation and i guess official historical records are a little bit hard to come by Mm -hmm. was audrey davis kind of like you're into a lot of that stuff and how did you kind of go about collecting the aspects of this story and these stories outside of just Sharon and Linwood's own personal narratives.
1: Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. She Audrey was great. I I really did um, pick her brain, and she was really the starting point. So I had okay. Sharon and Linwood, and then you know I talked to Audrey. She gave me great context, and then she directed me to the library. And I also spoke with a woman named Amy Birch, who is with mm. the. Um, are you familiar with her? You must be familiar yeah. with her. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, she was really a great source of information. She just shared some thoughts and ideas about the history. She really knows her history and and then just told me some key places to look in the library. And I did that and I just went through different articles and that was really my source. Um, and I tried to rely not too, too heavily on, um, on archival pictures. I really wanted to use the dollhouses. But um, the research between Audrey and then Amy and then going to the library and some of the librarians there were hugely helpful in in giving me information and context. It was the context because I didn't know that much about Alexandria history. Um, I knew some of the a few things, but not not a lot. Most of my information came from the Black History Museum, actually, the Alexandria Black History Museum
0: which is a fantastic resource. I yes. encourage everybody to go. Obviously when it's safe to go, I yes. would encourage everybody to go there. Yes. Um, as you said, you you yourself weren't too familiar with Alexandria's history coming into the experience. I guess in the process of filming the documentary and in editing the documentary kind of going over, I'm sort of poring over footage over and over again. How has looking at the, the city in miniature uh, kind of affected the way you think about the city more generally and more largely speaking
1: it's a mixed bag i think alexandria is very beautiful um and it's it's interesting because uh you know time time happens things change and it's an evolution and so there's There's the part of a town changing and evolving and growing, and that's beautiful. But there is something that gives you a little lump in your throat when you think there are pieces that will never be there again. And there are certain elements of the city that are forever changed, some for the good, some, you know, for the bad. Um, So it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's hard to say when I have left la- I, I never i never lived there and so i it's not like i was there left and came sure. back but it was interesting when i was talking to i think it was i think it might have been linwood's relatives or or one of linwood was saying he was talking to one of his relatives or it might have been francis terrell who's also in the film her um, cousins had passed away from a drowning because there was no pool at the time um, but anyway, one of them they were saying that a family member had moved away, came back, and said it was almost unrecognizable, um, and that they almost didn't know what to what to do with that. It was disorienting mm. because it had changed so much. Um, so it's it's interesting as an outsider. It's it's hard to have that perspective, but um, it's very yeah. beautiful and it's expensive. It is very expensive. <laughs> I didn't I know how expensive to it was. Personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, but again, I think that that's something, something you're talking about there is sort of universal to anybody. I think, I think we've all had some variant of the experience of coming back to our hometown and seeing how much it has changed or maybe more disturbingly how little it has changed. Yes. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, Exactly. Because, and that's the double-edged sword on one hand, you do want change to happen, right? Sure. So, right. Exactly.
0: Was there, were there any stories that you heard either sharon and Lynnwood tell or any of the other people you talked to for the documentary tell that have sort of stuck with you i'm, I'm sure they're always as a as even as a as a journalist who doesn't do film film and kind of broadcast work i hear stories from people that i even if they don't end up making it into the final story i know will always stay with me were there any stories that coming out of this project sort of really had an impact on you or any stories that you knew oh i absolutely have to Work that into the documentary somehow.
1: One thing I, I I did make sure I emphasized, and I think it was it was the thread throughout the whole film, is that people really looked after each other. And yeah. in the beginning part of the film, um, Francis Terrell, Mrs. Terrell says, uh, "You know, if I was out, you know, running around with my friends, and I was in a part of, you know, somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be, or I wasn't home when I was supposed to be, and a neighbor saw me, my parents would know about it." by the time I got home. And I thought there was something very poignant about that because it shows that people cared about each other. People really looked out for each other. And that was something Sharon said too. She said, you just knew that you were cared for and Mm. treated well. And I remember Audrey also said something along the lines of, um, the community was so protective because they wanted to let every child know that they were not less than. Do not believe that you are less than. Believe that you have worth and you have every right to hold your head high. So that that nature of someone's always looking after you because you are protected and cared for really stayed with me. I just thought that was so beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's truly what community means. Yes. Um, along those lines... Obviously, you're someone who has been in the business of telling stories for a long time, and telling stories that are often very localized. For you, more generally speaking, what what is the value of stories like this? Of stories like the ones that Sharon and Lynn would tell, very local stories that um, I think you and I agree on have have an impact and kind of a relevance far outside of kind of the little scope that they that they kind of contain. Mm -hmm. What are the value of these kinds of stories?
1: You know, I think it it really comes down to A, uh providing context to a community. B, I think it's about capturing a history and letting people know that their history matters, that they were here, that that they were they made a contribution. That's one of the comments that Sharon made. At the end of the film, was that we made a contribution, we mattered, we were here, we are here, and you know, I think if people don't know that history, it, it has a way of era- being erased if certain voices are not given an opportunity or a space to, to be heard, and I think that's why it matters. It provides a lot of context. Um, and relevance to why a community deserves to be here. And and at the end of the day, it's about making a contribution that can benefit everyone. I think that's what was so important and powerful too, was that this isn't just about saying, you know, oh, we're griping about our past. It's saying we have skills and talents that are making a contribution to this community too, and we all can benefit from that.
0: That's, it's, what, Local journalism does in, in, in a lot of ways It we're, we're attempting to capture a lot of these stories and it's as you said It's not just about Telling the story to people in 2021. It's about that story being written down and or in the in your case filmed and sort mm-hmm. of captured for generations for People to understand and have that context that history. Yes. It's a valuable yes. thing. Yes um, in that in that vein I know you are working on your fourth film, your fourth documentary film, which is called Odessa's Reign. Yes. I am I'm sure this is not specifically this is not specifically pertained to Alexandria, but the history behind the story you're telling in this film is absolutely fascinating. Could you tell people a little bit about what the film is about?
1: Oh, sure. Thank you. It's about a a woman who was called the Black female Al Capone. She was this boisterous, large lesbian in the 1950s. And I mention all of that because she became very wealthy as an illegal numbers runner. And the reason why I was so drawn to her was because I am not, you know, glamorizing crime by any means, but she was a woman who had very little options. And she found a way to not only live uh, a life where she could become financially successful, but also to be who she was. So in a society at the time where you were expected to look a certain way, you're expected to have a man, you were not expected to have any type of independence, she had her own enterprise. She didn't need a man, didn't want a man, and was able to call her own shots and i thought she was really fascinating as a character study about what people do when they want a piece of the american dream but the road to getting there was not available to them
0: definitely i mean when you when you told me the kind of bare bones outline of that story it's sort of mind blowing yes. to consider that in the 1950s this woman was this woman of color let alone yes. a woman in general was out very open about who she was and didn't really take didn't really suffer fools it sounds like that's Uh, right and that's part of i I guess i think for a lot of people that that story probably speaks to them on a number of levels but that's a lot of what kind of crime fiction and kind of gangster Mm -hmm. stories are in general whether they're italian black irish these are people who at various points in the country's history history have been marginalized as people in general and Unfortunately, the way our, our society has been structured, the only way for them to be who they are and kind of achieve, as you said, the American dream is through illegality. Right. And crime. Right. It sounds like this story is capturing a lot of that stuff, but a very specific lens of it, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you appreciate what that is because I have had people say, well, I, I really don't understand why you think this person is worth covering or doing anything. And I, I think, you know, they miss the point if they don't see why telling a story, uh, is important like this. And also I, you know, as someone who, you know, has worked in the corporate structure, you know, in media specifically, um, there's something very liberating when you read about someone who just says, I am who I am and I am confident And I am not going to apologize for who I am. And for her to do that in the 1950s is just incredible to me. And so there's a part of me that thinks, I wish I had a little bit of that.
0: Yeah, we all (laughs) wish we could be that way in 2021.
1: Yes,
0: exactly. So the way we like to close out each of these episodes is with a little bit of connective tissue from one episode to the next. And as someone who is in journalism and who, who... does make films about people and for people i'm sure you can appreciate a little bit of kind of cross-generational cross-cultural mm-hmm. and cross-community conversation here uh we end these episodes with a question posed by the previous guest for the current guest um without knowing who they are and so the, our previous guest Jero, Jero williams of the Jero williams experience posed a uh, a sweet tooth tinged question he he asked you uh if you could construct the perfect sunday what would that sunday be made out of in terms of toppings in terms of the ice cream itself uh we we talked about this probably more than we should have in the last episode i ended up cutting a lot of that conversation but uh i think it's i think it's a fun one it's it even though the weather is a bit chilly outside i think everybody can appreciate a good sunday
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I actually, this is a perfect question because I have a horrible sweet tooth. My sweet tooth (laughs) is one of my biggest vices. So really, this was an appropriate question. So I would have a brownie sundae, but it wouldn't just be a traditional. It would have the brownie. It would have big clumps of Mm -hmm. vanilla ice cream. And then I love mm. peanut butter, so I have peanut butter mixed with caramel dressing, Reese's pieces, whipped cream, sprinkles, and a cherry. So
0: that I'm salivating right now. I know, right?
1: <laughs> it, like the level of specificity tells you that I clearly <laughs> have a sweet tooth. Yeah, I also you've gave up about sugar this a, lot, but... a little bit. I have. Oh. You... <laughs> I have, and so yeah, I'm, I'm testing myself. I gave up sugar for the next. Uh, 40 days actually for lent. So I'm mm. on day 39, right? Like oh, wow. I've had one day for two days now. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: that's a test. That's a big test. It
1: is a test. It is a test, but I like yeah. doing it because it's mindfulness. If you take away the things that you just absolutely love and it makes you appreciate them more when you come back
0: to them. So, 100%. hmm um, And so I guess for you, what is a question you'd like to ask the next guest on our show without knowing who they are?
1: What is your favorite sound?
0: Mm, I like that a lot. Mm, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. A lot of things come to mind.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. It can be so many things. And sometimes when people tell you what it is, it um, illuminates little things about them is it the ocean is it a sound of a little child giggling is it you know there's so many things
0: definitely and it ties back to kind of what we've been talking about the whole the whole episode about memory too yes sound smell those things are really evocative of very specific moments in our lives so that's a great question i love yeah. it
1: oh good thank you
0: um Thank you so much for sitting down and talk with me, Robin. I really appreciate uh-huh. it. It's been a, it's been a fascinating conversation and mm-hmm. I honestly look forward to to your next film and whatever you do in the future. It sounds like there you have a lot of very interesting, important stories still to tell.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so supportive and, and interested and, and appreciating the value of that. and thank you for what you do. There isn't enough of that um, you know, local important
0: stories to be told. So thank you. Of course. Thank you so much, Robin, and thank you, Alexandria. Take it easy.